You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this year has been a year of first with so many legal challenges being laid around the election and the polarization of parties rising up to the high court. We talked to the new UH Law School Dean, Camille Nelson, who was selected this spring following Avi Soifer's retirement after 17 years. She talked with us just before a session with law students was going to take place last week. As we work through this moment that's really a historical moment, I think we realize that, you know, one person can make a difference for good or for bad or to be on the sidelines. I mean, I think it's a moment where people are not just observers. I mean, people are participating and raising their voices and recognizing that that voting is a right and a responsibility and recognizing that, frankly, the power of the law, the role of lawyers, the eminent role of judges as jurists and shapers of our democracy. So I think this is a moment of elevation in a way in terms of national discourse and democratic discourse. So if anything, I mean, I think it's been an empowering time for people's individual participation in systems and structures that shape our our everyday, but also shape our future. And I'm just thinking, you know, gosh, I would love to be in on the discussions at the law school at this point in time. Right. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, we're having a really interesting discussion today, and we'll be having another discussion after the election um, around, I think we called it, you know, what's at stake about this historical moment in terms of voting. So, you know, as I conceptualized it, I didn't want us to delve into like political ideology, but I did want us to talk about the legal impacts of the election. So we're having an open panel with some leading experts, and we will be doing more things like that because I think it's important for the community and it's important for our law students, and we certainly have a number of incredible thinkers at the school, but it's, you know, it's about that discourse and how we engage with it. It was conceptualized as a conversation. I wanted to be honest at first instance to make sure our students were recognizing this moment in terms of legal dialogue and discourse and how important, frankly, their future roles will be. I guess for the students who are studying law now there at the university, it is really a historic time, you know, and yeah. I know, you know, many of the professors there and, and your your predecessor had a personal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that yeah. loss, I'm sure, is just deeply felt. She came to lecture there and, and there were folks that were very excited Uh, to be able to have that opportunity to meet her. Absolutely. And she was incredibly generous with her time, both at the law school and at local high schools, for example. So to me, that indicates that she cared deeply about the future and the future generations of of legal leaders, I like to call them. So, you know, the fact that she, uh, with all of the demands on her time, took time to sit with students and to encourage them, um, I said, I think speaks volumes about her her commitments and, frankly, her support of future generations of lawyers. Um, and certainly, Dean Soifer had a wonderful relationship with Justice Ginsburg. When I was still in D.C., she was at my former school in November celebrating a former colleague. And she's just one of those people who was so giving and generous with her time, always in service of encouraging and lifting people up so that they, too, could make a difference. We grieve her loss, like many people. And what is it that you think would 
will be important for the law school going forward. You know, we are in a time where the country is so divided on so many issues, you know, whether it be race, you know, or politics or just our Constitution and our democracy. You know, so first and foremost, right now is making sure we're all safe and sound during the pandemic. And and frankly, that has intersected through, as you know, everything we do, the way we deliver our education, the way we meet, the way we convene, like even this, obviously, this conversation I referred to uh, that will be taking place around the election is through Zoom. But when we emerge from this pandemic, we want to emerge stronger because I don't think the pre-pandemic February 2020 status quo will hold. So we have to continue to think about how we sort of lift our voices and enhance our participation in things that matter, be those constitutional questions, policing or criminal justice, criminal legal system questions, you know, questions about climate justice. I mean, what are the pressing issues of the day? but also how we engage them and through what mechanism. So how does the technology and the communication look around that, right? I think we know now as well that people can attend classes and work remotely and online, and are we ready for that new reality, right? What, does our, what do our classrooms look like if we plan for 20 years from now? But you know, my main thing is always making sure the students understand that they are tomorrow's leaders, and I can't say that enough. So they, too, will be participating in really important ways in shaping this state's future and this country's future and how the world engages in the next several decades. It's their time. And I think that our job as as educators is to make sure that we do what we ought to responsibly to support them to take those take that baton and 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 accelerate and and really amplify their voices because i think this moment as well we've seen that the young people the gen zers and the millennials are are sort of participating and they're activated and we want to make sure they're activated and participating with great legal skills that's my job and that's our job at, at richardson to make sure they harness the power of the law to do great work and to do great things in service of the state and the country and beyond. It has been very disheartening to see the the discourse and the emotion and the disrespect. I mean, we all can have differences of opinion, but, you know, yeah. it's the civility, I think, that, you know, it just, it pains me anyway when, when I hear that uh, we have to, to shout at each other. It's just, uh, it's kind of sad. And thank you for saying that. You know, I feel the exact same way, and <laughs> I've said it, so many times now, I wonder if people hear it, you know, when I've been speaking uh, locally, but, you know, civility is important and it bespeaks professionalism and respect. And if we can't disagree even respectfully, what chance do we have of truly hearing each other? Right. And, you know, one of the tenets I, I've said of, of mindfulness is listening to learn, not just to respond. And sometimes that's really hard for lawyers because we're listening to think about how we juxtapose or intervene or intercept and, you know, strategically posture, as opposed to actually absorbing what someone is saying out of respect and thinking about it and contemplating and then trying to think how we can work together. 
and frankly, also how you can serve your client. But it doesn't mean sort of canceling someone, right? And it doesn't mean disrespecting someone. And it certainly doesn't mean yelling at someone or name calling. So I think there has been a tone setting, frankly, from the highest levels that we're going to have to readjust to do to do better. And by better, I mean to be more appreciative and respectful of each other, because, you know, also the young people are listening and watching. And if if we don't engage civilly and professionally and respectfully with each other, we're also setting a tone and modeling for them. And it's I don't think it's ever appropriate to be vicious and nasty. And some of what we've seen is beyond discourteous. And it's damaging. Now, I know you're just coming on board here at the University of Hawaii. You know, you've you've been here before. But, I mean, is there anything that you just want to share that you're struck by? You know, I'm struck by the embrace and the real recognition that community matters. And, and, you know, I know it might seem trite, but Ohana matters in, in the sense that people talk more openly here than many places where I've lived. And, you know, I've been fortunate to live in a number of places, but people speak more openly here about family and community and the local as crucial to the national. And they recognize the sort of power of relationships and, and the healing that can come from that or the fracture that can come from that in a way that I think in some places that's seen as soft. Those are soft variables. And they're not. They're what matters. Like, they're, that's the... That's the day-to-day, and those are those relationships and those families and those communities are what sort of allow us to thrive and to, and to do whatever it is we believe we're called to do. So I've always loved that recognition, and frankly, it resonates with me as a Jamaican because there's a similar orientation around, you know, ancestors and family and culture and community that has always sort of spoken to my heart here. And I think when you can speak to your heart and connect it with your mind, then you can really do great things. But I think to not recognize that, you know, our hearts also have to be nourished and our souls have to be replenished is to ignore really crucial parts of ourselves. So I feel that there's a more holistic approach to our humanity here that I hope doesn't sound Pollyannish, but it's always, it's always inspired me. Ultimately, when we emerge from this pandemic, I very much want to continue to build on the relationships that have been laid down in terms of foundationally with the practicing bar and the practicing bench. And I want to make sure that the law school is positioned competitively and advantageously for the heightened competition that will come out of the pandemic. That involves infrastructure, that involves technology, that involves person power, and it certainly involves making sure that we are elevating the way we support our students so that they can compete for professional opportunities that will be even more competitive when people are competing from distant places as well as near places. I see us emerging in a more competitive world because I think now what we used to think before was like, oh, we can't do these things remotely and people can't work in these ways and people can't study in these ways or can they and we question things. I think we, now we know that this is a possibility and it's our reality and I don't think all of this is going to disappear. So what the world looks like I think is going to be more competitive in mm-hmm. the coming years and, and we have to get ready for that and we have to invest and think strategically accordingly. 
That was Camille Nelson, who took over as dean of the UH Law School following Avi Soifer's retirement after 17 years at the helm. For links to the law school, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're shining the spotlight on a Maui-born civil rights activist and historian who's also a Supreme Court justice widow. This native of Pu'unene was the daughter of Filipino immigrants who arrived here in Hawaii in 1910. A couple of years after graduating from high school, she moved to New York to live with her uncle and aunt, where she took night classes at Columbia University to become a court stenographer. The NAACP hired her in 1948 as a secretary in Washington, D.C., in her first assignment, she picketed the movie The Birth of a Nation at a local theater, which soon stopped playing the film. She met her future husband while working at the NAACP, and they were married in 1955. Frequent visitors to their apartment included Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. What's the full name of this civil rights activist from Hawaii? And a bonus question, what high school did she attend? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag. The townspeople, you got it right. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. Uncontrolled high blood pressure, worsening heart failure, these are just a few of the issues that can happen when essential medical care is delayed. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local expert on the signs and symptoms of heart problems and when to seek immediate care. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Hawaii's new mail-in balloting process has managed to increase voter response in a big way. But in some states across the country, the process has spurred lawsuits from blind voters who feel disenfranchised. We hear from the head of the Hawaii Disabilities Rights Center, Louis Erdeshek, about the concerns here in the islands. The mail-in voting actually has pluses and minuses. I mean, in some ways, it can make things a lot easier for people with disabilities, right? Because if you otherwise have a mobility issue and you have to go down to a polling place and we have to make, you know, make sure the polling place is accessible, here you can just pop it in the mail and act the end of it. So on some level, it makes it easier. For some people, it, it does pose uh, 
additional challenges because uh, like the, the biggest problems I think that we're seeing are, are folks from the that are visually impaired because uh, you get the you know in the under the old system and of course I say the old system you still can at least go down every island has a couple of polling places that are still open so if you want to go down and vote in person you still can it's just that it's much more limited and you don't have you can't go to your local polling place uh, like like you could you know prior to, to this year uh, but but it's still an option but the biggest issue we've seen in terms of obstacles are folks, folks with visual impairments where if you just get the paper ballot and, you know then you can't see how to, and you can't you don't know how to fill it in uh, then you need somebody to help you and then you lose that uh, you know the privacy and the secret secret ballot aspect of it so there are thing forms available from the office of elections uh, in, in like an electronic format and so you would you, have to, you contact them and then there are ways that they can send it to you essentially you know via email that you can fill it out the same way that you might in terms of using other kinds of assistive technology devices so that's that's probably the biggest downside to it uh, but but in many ways, it can make it easier. As I say, it's pluses and minuses. I mean, we tried to raise this to the legislature when they were looking at going to the all-mail-in system, and uh, we, you know, we did say that that we thought they should have more in-person polling centers open, but they didn't do that. And then I know even after it passed, and groups like Common Cause and others we're trying to get them to expand the number of, poll of you know, live polling places. And I'm not sure that they were successful. So we, we just have like a couple on, on each island. So it does pose some challenges, but uh, there's also, there's a lot of, if you go to their website, they have a lot of information on where they have drop-off ballots. So if you don't want to mail it in, like I believe right now we're, Past the date that that they would safely guarantee that it would get received, there are drop-off boxes located at a, on a, a variety of places on the island, and we are told that those drop-off boxes are supposedly accessible, so that you can drive right up, or, or you know that you know if you're in a wheelchair, it won't be a problem. Uh, so there are still lots of options. For people with disabilities to exercise the right to vote, I've always believed that it's it's really important for people with disabilities to, to vote. You know, I've worked at the legislature a lot. I was a staff attorney up there years ago. I go back now and I testify on bills. I've always felt that it's really important for people with disabilities to be considered and counted as a political force, so to speak, so that. Uh, you know, it sounds maybe it sounds trite, but it's important for their voice to be heard. And you know, the reality of how that comes about is that yes, there are many legislators that are sympathetic to the issues, but uh, if you know, the more powerful they are as a political voice, then I think the greater the likelihood it is that their issues are, are going to get prioritized. What kinds of things did you see with the primary in terms of some of the? logistical issues and things like that. Yes. I think we did get some complaints from people with visual impairments that they were having difficulty getting the formatting properly sent to them from the Office of Elections. So uh, 
we are told that the Office of Elections has, you know, worked on it to try to correct that for the general election. Uh, and, you know, we're hoping that that's the case. We, uh, and I think that was one, I think we did get an inquiry from one person who mentioned that there was some issue about they didn't think the signature matched up properly on the ballot that was sent in. And uh, I think we're still working with them directly on trying to, to rectify that. So, uh, you know, I expect that there still could be logistical issues. It's not going to shock me if this thing comes off and it's not perfect. But uh, I, I do have to say that, that I do think that the Office of Elections has tried to work cooperatively with us. We have some of our advocates that have contacted them and, you know, directly spoke about specific issues that people were having. And uh, it seemed like they were genuinely concerned in trying to rectify it, sir. Are there any issues related to the neighbor islands? They end up in a similar situation in terms of there's only a few polling sites on the neighbor islands. So I would say that it's somewhat parallel to what we have here. But because it's more rural and it's more spread out, I think there is some chance that it, if somebody wants to actually go and vote in person, it could be those issues could be a little bit more exaggerated on the neighbor islands. But if you look at the Election Commission website, they do... Uh, they do have those drop-off boxes on the neighbor islands as well. You know, the other issue that might come up with somebody that hasn't registered yet, I believe you can do a same-day registration if you go in person. I don't think you can do it online anymore. Yeah, no, you, you but, can do in person. Right. So so they, so, so if somebody with a disability or I mean, anybody, for that matter, if, if, they, if they still want to vote then and, and they haven't registered, then they do have the same-day registration. So... Uh, not every state provides for that. So that is, I mean, I think they've done a pretty good job of trying to expand the ability of people to vote. My recollection is that the, the turnout in the primary was sort of like a record high, wasn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. I think that the percentage of turnout was was really good. And so, you know, as you know, Hawaii has historically had a lower turnout. So to the extent that the mail-in system increases participation, I think anybody who's a, you know anybody who believes in the importance of democracy and voting would have to say that that's a that's a, a good result. You know, from our perspective at the Disability Rights Center, it's important to be as inclusive of people with disabilities as possible, and to make sure that any barriers to voting are are eliminated. That was uh, Louis Ertishak, the head of the Hawaii Disability Rights Center, talking about how voters with disabilities are coping with the new mail-in voting process. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next online info session for the Executive MBA is November 5th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu Imagine a group of engaged peers who get together to connect with each other, to celebrate and support our community, and to have a good time. You've just envisioned Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and each other. It's a group that's welcoming, diverse, and lively, and we want you to be a part of it. We're always looking for new members and for volunteers interested in joining our leadership team. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. 
American voters will finally get to choose who they want in the White House. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. Get out and vote. The red wave is coming. And an anxious nation awaits the results of critical contests around the country. Join us Tuesday night for NPR's special live coverage of Election Night 2020 from NPR News. Live coverage begins Tuesday afternoon at 2 here on HBR One. Before the COVID-19 pandemic struck, some say it seemed like we were rounding the corner on environmental consciousness in America. But when pandemic concerns skyrocketed, the need for masks, gowns, face shields, takeout containers, and other items, some feared the headway being made on plastics would be lost. Suzanne Fraser is the co-founder of the Beach Environmental Awareness Campaign Hawaii, or BEACH for short. The group recently hailed the success of a year-long effort to recycle 1.2 million plastic bottle caps into fuel. Fraser says the pandemic has set back recycling efforts in the nation. She spoke to The Conversation's producer, Harrison Patino, about how plastic recycling and cleanup efforts here in Hawaii have been impacted by COVID-19 and what needs to be done going forward. We've been working very hard on the issue of reducing plastic at the source and helped introduce the first bills to ban plastic bags and take action on smoking, which are also made of plastic. And along came styrofoam bans and so on. And, you know, it took a very long time to get progress in that area. In fact, when we finally passed Bill 40 last year, it had been a 13-year effort by our organization to um, get polystyrene foam band on this island and to get a proper plastic bag band done. And so things were definitely on a roll, I felt, and because we had the support both from lawmakers and the community, even the businesses were on board, and then the pandemic hit and things went a little bit backwards. So I'm hoping that, you know, we can get back on track soon and and get back to using less plastic. It's a real conflict to be placed with. I mean, what are your thoughts on this resurgent need for plastic as people have to choose between environmental consciousness and economic convenience? I don't actually see it as that kind of a dichotomy between environmental consciousness and economic convenience, because the thing was that when I was growing up, nobody wasted plastic. You know, everybody knew that that was wasteful in two ways. One was wasting money because you were buying something that you're going to use once or twice or a few times and dispose. And the second one is wasting landfill space and throwing something away. And somewhere along the line, people just started losing that kind of consciousness and becoming more wasteful and not thinking about the money side of it either. And I think these days people have been a bit taken in by those words single-use plastic and think that those items are single-use, like bags, bottles, utensils, cups. None of that single-use, actually. All of that can be used over and over again. And when it comes to masks, unless you're in the health profession and you have to throw it away um, after one use, you don't have to be throwing away masks after one use either. And of course, it's even better if you can use reusable items. And in the long run, that's the most cost-effective way is to get reusable cloth masks, reusable cloth bags, reusable utensil sets. That's the best way to go for both an economic benefit and an environmental benefit. Otherwise, if you're continuously buying disposable items, um, you're wasting money 
and you're causing an environmental overload of plastic mess. Now, we really have seen that rise in plastic products, specifically masks, but in other cases, anything from bubble wrap to takeout containers. I mean, anecdotally, is it safe to say that we're seeing more trash on our streets and on our beaches? I know myself, on hikes going to beaches, even on the streets, I'm seeing discarded masks everywhere. Yes, I've seen discarded masks too, which is really sad. And I think that people are very aware of cutting the six-pack ring holes open before discarding them. But I don't think the message has got across at all, and I hope it does now, that masks have loopholes, you know, holes to go around your ears, and those need cutting too. Like anything you dispose of that's a hole or a loop must be cut open. And letting masks, you know, I don't know how they're getting all loose everywhere and in the environment, whether people are just being careless, whether they're blowing out of the car or whatever it is. But when you've got a plastic item, well, hopefully you won't, but if you have a plastic item, it's really important to be conscious of where is it and making sure that you've got it and you put it away properly or dispose of it properly and not just let it you know, fly out of a car or wherever it went. Now, in terms of the immediate short term and maybe even the longer view of things, do you think that there's going to be a serious impact of marine debris because of the increase in plastics that are being used during this time? There's always a um, serious impact on marine debris. Well, really, it's the impact is on marine life, you know, if, if plastic pollution increases. And unfortunately, what's going on is that the oil industry, which supplies the plastics industry, are now ramping up efforts to make more plastic because the more that people move away from fuel-driven cars to electric cars, the industry wants to find a new way to use up all that excess oil. And of course, with the pandemic and all the plastic that's now being utilized, that's another whole industry increasing. And unfortunately, in some places around the U.S., they're rolling back laws that require people to bring their own reusable bags and so on and, and let stores hand out plastic bags. So, you know, really what our whole planet needs to be doing along with dealing with the pandemic is being aware of the environmental issues that are going on at the same time that are very impactful not just for marine life and the environment and you know how beaches are clean or dirty but it's impacting our health as well and our ability of our immune systems to cope with something like COVID-19 you know it's very important that people understand that plastic isn't just a nuisance or a litter or a thing like that but it's actually made of chemicals and those chemicals harm our bodies and so anything you're doing to yourself that's harmful as far as drinking out of a plastic water bottle or eating out of a styrofoam container, those chemicals are causing harm to your body and then those containers and so on are causing harm to the environment and to marine life if they get into the ocean. I mean, do you think people's capacity to really care for these big picture issues has been diminished by the pandemic? It seems like in a normal year, and of course 2020 by no means has been a normal year, but in a normal year, it seems that people were getting better and better about understanding the environmental scope of the issues that we face mm -hmm. in the modern world. But as the pandemic loomed upon us, it seemed almost that people were more focused with much more immediate issues. I mean, not to turn this into a psychological issue, but do you think mentally people just don't have the capacity to care about these larger issues? Um, it's very hard to generalize about a whole population, but I can tell you that the media focuses 
pretty much just on the pandemic. I mean, we just accomplished an enormous goal yesterday, which was sending 1.2 million plastic caps and lids for recycling and turning into oil. And that was a years-long project, and it's had no coverage whatsoever because probably the pandemic, um, because we just opened for tourism yesterday, and unfortunately it was on the same day. Um, so maybe from the media's perspective, it's not as important. I don't know. But from the business perspective, um, they're using this pandemic, I feel, as an excuse to try to roll back very important laws like Bill 40 and Bill 59. 59 bans plastic bags, 40 bans a whole lot of disposable um, plastic use for food and drinks. And, you know, they'll want to use any excuse um, to do that and to say that it's going to save them money if they don't implement those new laws when actually it's going to save them money if they did and improve people's health if they did. And that my point is that we need to build people's health and immune systems up, not diminish them continuously with the onslaught of plastic chemicals. So as individuals, I mean, I know from having Zoom meetings and still communicating with people that they absolutely do care about the environment and the impacts of plastic on the environment and marine life and their health. And I think the public, although the media is not focusing on these things, perhaps, um, the public is very capable of caring about more than one issue at the same time. Now, if we could just finish up here on that local legislation, are you getting a real sense that there might actually be a possibility that bills like Bill 40 could be repealed in favor of some sort of economic consideration? I hope not. I hope that lawmakers, that they don't let that happen because this was a very hard-won victory for everyone, you know, for our health, for the environment, for marine life, and... We need to keep those bands going on the schedule that they're on. And I don't believe that it will impact businesses because next year's ban in January 2021 will get rid of disposable plastic utensils, straws, stirrers, and the plastic grass and sushi. And then the non-plastic alternatives are to be provided only upon request. Or in a self-service area, which means that instead of a restaurant automatically handing out a plastic packet with some plastic utensils in it to every customer that comes by for takeout food, they're only going to include the alternative utensils, so made of birch or compostable corn or something like that. They're only going to hand those out if someone asks them for those. And that will therefore save the business money. That was Beach co-founder Suzanne Fraser talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino last month about how cleanup and recycling efforts in the islands have been affected by COVID-19. Earlier in the show, we asked you about an American civil rights activist and historian who was born on Maui in 1928. Her parents were Filipino immigrants who had moved to Hawaii in the early 1900s. She attended Pu'unene School and graduated from Baldwin High in 1945. 
few years later, she moved to New York City, where she took night classes at Columbia University, studying to be a court stenographer. Her career would take her to Washington, D.C., working as a private secretary for the NAACP. And this is where she met her future husband, Thurgood Marshall, who was executive director for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. They married in 1955 and had two sons. In 1967, President Johnson successfully nominated Marshall to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. In so many photos, you can see Pu'une native Cecilia Sissisuyat Marshall standing proudly by his side. And congratulations to Shulan Schubert Kwok. You got it right. And thanks to Derek Malama for spurring today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We now take another pause for the monthly civil defense siren test. Stay with us. We'll be right back in just a moment. Civil Beat has a story about the increase of citations that police have handed out to the homeless here on Oahu. Joining us this morning for our reality check is reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So we've all heard about the HPD crackdown, but wow, you found out that a number of people have been cited like dozens of times. That's right. So as the Honolulu Police Department has endeavored to enforce the mayor's pandemic-related rules, like wearing a mask and social distancing, the people that are getting cited most frequently, uh, over and over again, dozens of times, are people experiencing homelessness. Uh, We learned this by doing a data analysis of court data. And so even though homeless people on Oahu make up less than 1% of the population, uh, we found that they make up about a quarter of all COVID violations. So what did the ACLU have to say about this? Because I know they've been really concerned about these citations. Yeah, that's right. Um, They were sort of dumbfounded um, and couldn't really think of a a rational explanation for this. Uh, You know, ultimately, these citations get dismissed en masse by prosecutors that just haven't been able to handle the influx. Um, For other citations, like long-standing uh, homeless criminaliz- criminalization measures like sit-lie, um, those often become bench warrants before they get dismissed, which can lead to homeless people being incarcerated. Um, so these these citations, even if they get dismissed in the end, can have an impact, and um, homeless advocates say it amounts to harassment and, and forces folks to move around in the community at a time when the CDC is saying we should be having people shelter in place. And for the folks who've gotten numerous citations, you know, you have to wonder about, you know, their mental health. They really understand what's going on. That's right. We spoke to some um, doctors that work with these people on the street, and they say some of the clients that were getting cited dozens of times are so severely mentally ill that they don't even know a pandemic is happening. Um, So they really don't have the wherewithal to understand what the rules are, what they should be doing, um, and yet they're getting ticketed dozens of times. Um, You know, it makes you wonder why. And so uh, I understand that the HPD has established a quota for citations that they give out? Well, the chief says there's no department-wide quota. At least one district, um, East Honolulu, did implement one of two citations per day. The chief 
broadly has been encouraging officers to write lots of tickets to demonstrate that the officers are working hard and earning the overtime that they're getting from the CARES Act, the the federal aid money that we got from the federal government. Uh, So far, $5 million of that money, um, of that CARES Act money, has been spent uh, writing tickets. Okay, so you found it in one area, but there's not a blanket quota then. Right. The chief said there's not a blanket quota, um, but she just said, you know, we apply the law equally. Um, We we ticket kind of the people that we see. Unfortunately for homeless folks, they've become perhaps more visible than ever because, you know, with tourists gone much of this year, people who have homes sheltering in place, the people that are are out there where the, the police can see them are unsheltered. And so they've been getting the disproportionate number of tickets. So is the ACLU going to do anything to challenge this? Do you know? Uh, I don't have an answer on that. I I know that they they follow the issue closely. Um, You know, again, ultimately the tickets get dismissed, so it's not as if um, people are having to pay a fine at the end necessarily or getting sentenced to jail time. Um, It's just the impact of the ticketing itself um, that, you know, a lot of people are, are asking if this is the best use of our resources. Right. Okay. I know some folks might think it's harassment, but thank you, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read the entire story, head to civilbeat.org. Actors interested in auditioning for Aloha Tire, a new play at Kumukuhua Theater, were encouraged to do so in 80s fashion. It was to add a little tongue-in-cheek fun to playwright Lee Cataluna's original script. The show opens virtually on November 5th, so if you need a break from election stories, you might want to check it out. Take a listen. Teresa, what is that on your neck? Oh, nothing, Grandma. I burned myself with the curling iron. Oh, not the red hickey-looking thing, the gold thing. Did you win a medal? Oh, this. It's from Kavika. Why did your boyfriend give you a medal? It's not a medal. It's a necklace. But it's so shiny. It's because it's gold. Looks like a leaf. It is. It's my lily. What? They dip it in gold. (laughs) <laughs> Remember those days? We talked to director R. Kevin Garcia-Doyle about the production and challenges of staging a performance without the physical connection of a live audience. What I think is really exciting about this particular time in history, and it's one of the few silver linings of the current pandemic situation, is that everyone in the theater world across the world is exploring how to create live performing art online right now. So the ability to create stuff online and the the techniques that are being able to be applied to creating stuff online have been growing exponentially by leaps and bounds. I mean, this summer I direct did a Shakespeare production that was very, very basic, and it was essentially just on Zoom. That was all there was to it. This one, I think one of the really exciting things about it is that our uh, our brilliant technical person, Veronica Vera, is finding ways to put actors who are in socially isolated locations in the same frame together using green screen technology and stuff. So I think one of the ah. really cool things about this particular production from a technological standpoint is you have a chance to see something that looks a little bit more like a live film with people 
interacting with each other in the same frame, even though they're miles apart in reality. As far as the script itself goes, the script is fantastic. It is a sequel to Lee Cataluna's play Flowers of Hawaii, really more of a prequel. It follows the adventures of that family focused around a group of high school kids in the 1980s who are members of the same family that are in Flowers of Hawaii, and some of the funny and serious events that happen in their lives. Very well written. I'm concerned about giving too much away (laughs) other than to say that, as always, Lee Cataluna's writing is funny and incisive and moving, and uh, the characters she's created are all very, very memorable again. Uh, So it's a local family in the the 80s in Hawaii uh, navigating all the changes that were happening to the world at the time. And both Lee and I are that generation, so uh, we're really... (laughs) So it's been really fun to get to relive some of that decade again. So when you had auditions, you had uh, actors wear their, you know, finest 80s attire. (laughs) You know, uh, a couple of them did, but we didn't require that. But now that's one of the fun things about getting the the show up and going, is uh, we have a costume designer who is from Kauai uh, and grew up in Kauai during this same period, and she is finding some amazing things. Miley is finding some amazing things that are straight out of (laughs) Hawaii 80s fashions. You know, she's found some of the Hawaiian-Asian fusion attire, the early mu'umu's that combine all kinds of different fabrics and patterns, and she's found, like, uh, the Miley Leaf gold necklaces that used to be so popular from Liberty House. And I have one uh, of those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's been really, really fun seeing a lot of this stuff come back and be back on the screen again. So maybe not necessarily raiding Goodwill and Sabres, but maybe just your own closet, huh? In a lot of cases, you're absolutely right. Either their closets or, in the case of a lot of these actors, their parents' closets. We didn't cast people who were high school age. We cast a fairly young-looking cast, but they're all young enough that they have... (laughs) that they have relatives that would have owned this stuff back in 1984-85. And so the, the the title of this play is Aloha Attire. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, is there an underlying message there? You know, I think that's one of the, that's actually one of the things that the script explores. Each of the scenes is centered around a specific item of Aloha Attire. The very first scene is centered around a child's mu'umu'u. The second one is around the gold miley leaf pendant. And it's not necessarily about that particular item all the time, but it's about how the things we wear reflect who we are or who we were at the time. You know, the miley leaf necklace scene is centered around a character that got it as a romantic gift from her boyfriend. And while the scene is not about that object, that's central to who she is as a character. It's a symbol of almost her relationship. So all of these objects are things that have you know, memories or history attached to them for the people who have them. We've had a lot of conversations about how, you know, sometimes you'll go into an attic after a relative passes away and find a box of stuff, and you'll know that every single object in that box contained all of these memories and all of this importance for them, and some of it you might be aware of and some of it might be lost. And that's, I think, part of what Lee is exploring in this particular play, is the idea of what we remember, what is left behind, and what is lost to time, because 
that's not passed on. So it does have some significance in, in that regard. And I think that's really one of the fun things about it is how each of these items of clothes are really associated with a really important moment in the different characters' lives over the course of the play. You know, I think for all of us who've done theater for a long time, the drawback to this new way of doing things is that we don't have the ability to actually hear the audience responding to things. Because that energy exchange between the audience and the actors, just from their presence, whether it's their laughter, whether it's their physical responses to something, are all things that are really important to shaping a live performance of a show. And not being able to have that is challenging for actors and directors. On the other hand, I think that still being able to perform it live, even though we are separated, has been something that I think all of the actors have been really grateful for. One of the ongoing conversations I've had with a lot of our actors during these times is, is that they really like being able to still keep doing what they love to do. And that's not nothing, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's hard, but it's exciting again how much we're able to discover. And our Kevin Garcia Doyle says, thanks to the generosity of First Insurance, the play is free to screen virtually. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. The show opens on Wednesday, November 5th. And that's a wrap. Tomorrow, we'll get the latest from the chief elections officer as we head into the general. What are your thoughts? What's on your mind? What races are you watching closely on Tuesday night? Share your thoughts. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Record a voicemail and email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.